0: Father, we come before you today as your creations, as those who are beloved, and as people who maybe need to be reminded how just how valuable we are. Maybe this morning we need to be reminded that we were created in your image, and it was given to us to have governorship over creation, to take care of it in your name. We praise you for the gifts that you've given us, the dignity you have endowed us with. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to live up to everything you've asked us to do. Amen. So if you haven't, flip back to Philemon for a moment. Um, it's a very short book, you may have noticed. If you can see the beginning of the book, odds are you can see the end of the book. It's more of a a short letter that Paul wrote to this guy named Philemon about a situation that maybe got a little sticky and out of control that Paul needed to address. So I I, kind of have gotten in the habit lately of just having sort of a one-way conversation with this is what God has told me as I have read this this past week and I'm just gonna share that with y'all. I kind of want to try a two-way conversation because I've started taking college classes again and doing them online is really boring because the professor posts something, I post something, all my classmates ignore it, and then we never ever read it ever again, (laughs) right? So this morning, I actually have a couple questions for you and if you're exceptionally brave, maybe you'll raise your hand and you can answer them and kind of point out what you see in the text and maybe we can figure this out together. So, we read most of the book just now that Paul wrote to Philemon. Did you catch why Paul was writing? What was, what was the purpose that Paul was writing? Could be who he was writing to or what he'd asked for or something like that. Did anyone catch that? He's writing to Philemon. Mm-hmm. Right. So Philemon had previously had a slave named Onesimus. <coughs> and so he's asking to send Onesimus back to Philemon to be able to like be a brother other than a slave. Right. He's asking Philemon to take a runaway slave back not as a restored slave, but as a brother. It's a big ask. goes against the culture of the time because the standard punishment for a runaway slave was to put them to the death as an example because otherwise you'd have slaves running away all the time and you can't have that and so marina actually already answered what was going to be my second question which was who was an and he's this this former slave that paul had asked philemon to take back as a beloved brother Right. So if you want to like kind of put this in context, imagine for a moment that you hire someone to work in your home and to take care of stuff because you're going on a long trip. And so you say, hey, I'm going to give you $5,000. I need you to take care of all of my property while I'm gone for the next six months. And when I get back, you know, hopefully everything will be all put together. You know, if there's like some rain and the roof starts leaking, get it taken care of, just handle my stuff for me. Here's five grand, I'll see you in six months. And instead of taking care of your stuff, they take your five grand, they deposit it in their checkbook, and they go, say, to Atlantic City, right? They don't take care, they don't do what it is that you expected them to do. They don't do what you had paid them to do. But while they're in Atlantic City, they need a pastor. And they understand, oh, I just stole $5,000. That's bad. And so the pastor writes you a letter. Says, hey, I've got that person you hired. They stole your money. They ran off. They started gambling with it or whatever they were doing in Atlantic City. But I need you to take them back as a brother. You can do that for me, right? Right? This is not a simple thing that Paul's asking for. It doesn't make sense. It's not socially acceptable. People were of different social standings. Onesimus is a slave. Philemon is the guy who has enough money to hire slaves or buy slaves. And so expecting them to be brothers, I'm sorry, Paul, that's just not really how it works. Let me explain to you why I'm not going to do that. So here's a follow up question. Did you see how Paul was talking to Philemon, starting, say, around verse 8 or around verse 17? What was the general attitude there? It's your duty. It's your duty? You've got to. This is not a polite ask, right? What other language did Paul use to kind of put the nail in the coffin? You owe me. You owe me. Because you see, Phile- like, Philemon was a member of a church that Paul had founded. So, you know, in verse 8, he says, For this reason I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty. You have to take this guy back as a brother. Yet I'd rather appeal you to you on the basis of love, and I do this as an old man and as a prisoner of Christ, Just casually dropping his credentials as an elder in the church, as someone who's currently suffering for the cause of Christ. But I want to ask you to do it in love, but I just also commanded you to do it. Okay. You know, it's this really polite arm-twisting. He's got Philemon in a rhetorical headlock. Right? This is is not a polite request where maybe it would be nice or as an ideal, maybe you don't kill him when he gets back. Paul is saying point blank, this is what you're going to do for me, because you owe me. Or verse 17, if you consider me as a partner, I need you to welcome Iissimus as you would welcome me. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, touch it to my account. I will say nothing about you owing me, even life itself. <laughs> You know, so Paul is basically saying, look, if has stole some money, you know, I, I get that. That's okay. You can you can put it on my tab. By the way, you owe me your life. <laughs> right? Like this this is Paul, like, it's it's polite, it's respectful, it's it's rhetoric, like it, it's skilled language, but he doesn't leave any room for negotiating. Uh, Philemon like because the standard practice was when these letters are sent, you send someone with the letter, and then the person reads the letter publicly before the church. So I don't know this for sure, but it's entirely possible that Philemon is sitting in his maybe front row seat because he's rich, and that's where people who are rich sit, you know. And so he's sitting in the front row, and then they start talking about Philemon, and then Philemon notices Anissimus. and then Paul starts talking about what Philemon needs to do to accept Anissimus back as a brother. Oh, by the way, Philemon, you owe me your life. You're going to do that for me, right? Anything he owes, you just charge it to my tab. You owe me everything. Politely, of course. And then he just kind of tacks on the end there in verse 22. One thing more. Hey, Philemon, I need you to prepare a guest room for me, because I might be coming to visit to check up on how things went. Subtle, right? So, we've got the, these complicating factors, right? You've got this, this relationship that should be anything but equal according to the laws of Rome, right? And I've mentioned this before, but I kind of geeked out and listened to a 170-some episode-long podcast on the history of Rome. So, like, the recurring theme was, slaves can do certain things, but certainly not others. Slaves maybe could have money and property and responsibilities, but they'd never be the equal of freed people who have the same property, money, and status, right? There's always that dividing line. And then Paul just comes in like a wrecking ball and demolishes that. He breaks down the wall and says, by the way, your former slave who ran away and stole from you is your Whether we want to admit it or not, there are probably a couple dozen different ways that if we were to walk through a church, or a shopping mall, or any public place, that we kind of rank people. You know, like, there's that weird guy who, he may be standing up front of the church, but currently he's wearing comfy khakis, a polo, and sandals. Maybe really good people, maybe they're wearing shoes and black socks. So you kind of rank people, you know? You, you, you've got it like, this is how it works. Or maybe that person over there, they're paying with their EBT card. They're not paying with a credit card, but I am paying with cash, because I've got the money. And so you kind of, like, you kind of feel a little better about yourself when you check out. Because there's, you know, there's a hierarchy of these things. And then we read this letter of Paul. Yes. <laughs> Paul says, hey, you see that person over there? You see that person with all these dividing lines, with all these reasons that you think you're better than they are? Do you see all these reasons for division, why these reasons why you probably wouldn't have them over for dinner too often, maybe once to look good, but not on a continuing basis? That's your brother. That's your sister. And if you think they owe you anything, just put it on my tab, because you owe me life itself. See, there's a couple things that Paul did here. One is that he put his own reputation and his own status and his own respectability on the line, and he shared it with someone who had none. If Onesimus had come back and just said, hey, Philemon, I'm sorry, it probably would not have ended well. Onesimus didn't have the status to come back and ask. He was probably a thief. He probably taken the money for a trip, and then just disappeared with it. And yet Paul was willing to say, hey, this guy, he's one of us. This guy's family. And I wonder, when people walk into church, is the first feeling they get, this is family. I hope so. So when we say, you know, we are all sons and daughters of Christ, we, we should mean it. When we say, you know, you see the old TV shows where you're out west and you've got the Westmans, and they say, well, it's Brother, brother Dave and it's, it's Sister Catherine. And, you know, like, we should mean that kind of literally. Jesus said, if you don't hate your own family, then you really don't have a whole lot to do with me. And he didn't mean literally go out of your way to be mean to them. But maybe what he meant was, it's not about that. It's about this new thing that we can build together. This thing built on love and peace. This new thing built on extending the family to anyone who wants to join. Extending the family beyond the point where we're comfortable because everyone looks like us and talks like us and acts like us and has the same social status we do. Let's break down those boundaries a bit. Let's make the family just a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger, and a little bit bigger. And see, when Paul came in, he broke all of those rules, and it reminded me, like most sermons tend to, of Chronicles of Maria. If you've never read the book series, please, I will loan you a full set, it's fine. They're relatively short books. Please go read them tomorrow. But the first book, at least in written chronological order, is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and there's this guy who is supposed to be a good guy. And instead, he runs off to the Witch of Winter, and he sells his brothers and his sister, and he sells out Aslan, and he's a traitor. And so when the three good ones of the family come to Aslan, he asks, well, where is the other one? Where is the four? And he finally shows up after being rescued, and then the witch comes for him. And she cites what she calls the deep magic, where she says, look, this is the way the rules of the world work. This is how Narnia works. The blood of traitors belongs to me. His life is forfeited. And Aslan looks at her and says, do not cite the deep magic to me, which I knew I was there when it was written. The end of the story is that Aslan sacrifices himself to not only restore the traitor brother, but to restore everyone who wants to be redeemed, everyone who wants to be rescued, and the power of the evil places was broken. Because you see, it may not be deep magic, but our world has rules. It has structures. It has the things that you have to do, the things you're supposed to do. There are rules to be followed, there are laws to be obeyed. And yet you see Jesus, and Jesus went out of his way to disobey every religious law that got in his way of doing something good. He healed people on the Sabbath so that he could explain to Pharisees that the Sabbath was created to serve man, not man to serve the Sabbath. The disciples are walking next to a field and they're hungry on a Sabbath day, so they pick some heads of wheat and they start chewing down because they needed a snack. The Pharisees get all mad. Well, they're, they're working, they're harvesting on the Sabbath. How dare they? And Jesus says, hey, they're hungry. They got some food. What wrong was done here? Even David, back in the day, when he was hungry, he took the consecrated bread out of the temple and he ate it himself. Don't you know your own Bible? He got a little sassy every time somebody tried to make the rules more important than the people that the rules are supposed to protect. You can almost see Jesus, like maybe looking forward two thousand years or so in the future, and saying, "Don't cite the deep magic to me. I was there when it was written. Don't cite the Old Testament laws to me, guys. I was there when they were written." When Jesus was asked, "What is it that makes the deep magic work? What is it that makes the law and the prophets? What is it that makes them tick? What is the core of everything there is?" His answer was, "Love God with your heart." soul, mind, and strength. And, but wait, there's a second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. When he was asked at the Last Supper, when he was about to sacrifice himself for us, he said, I knew command i give you, love one another. Because people will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Or Micah 6a, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Or, from the New Testament, this is is the faith, this is the spiritual practice that God loves, is to care for orphans and widows when they are distressed, and to keep yourself unstained by the world. That's the law behind even the deep magic. This is what God says. When someone says, hey, what really, really matters. Care for widows and orphans. Keep yourself unstained by the world. Don't seek to have dominion over people. Seek to serve. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. If there's ever a law that goes against that, You have my permission and you have the permission of God Almighty in heaven to break that law into little pieces. It's exactly what Jesus did while he was on the earth. Whether it's religious law or man's law, they were made to serve man, to make us safe and happier and healthier, to bring us into community. Anything that breaks that deserves to be thrown. is the word of the Lord.